Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Hall-Hall. This is Disorder, the podcast where we try to discuss ways to restore order to our mad, 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 mad world. In this episode today, which unfortunately Jason can't join us because he is currently moving house, I'm going to be talking to Tom Fletcher, a former British ambassador to Lebanon, a former advisor to three British prime ministers, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and David Cameron, an expert on British foreign policy and also an expert on the United Nations. Tom and I also happen to be old friends and colleagues because both of us worked together on the Middle East peace process back in the 1990s when such a thing as a peace process did actually exist and there was still hope and active negotiations underway for a two-state solution. This is the third in a series of episodes we've been doing on this podcast to cover the appalling, tragic events in the Middle East. In the first episode, my co-host Jason Pack chatted with our roving correspondent David Patrakarakos. Last week, Jason and I chatted a little bit more about just how difficult it is for people to talk about this situation without appearing to be biased or taking sides or justifying terrorism or playing fast and loose with the history of that conflict. It's a highly emotive and sensitive subject. And no matter how balanced you try to be, there's always a risk of upsetting somebody. So please bear with us on this podcast. We're not saying that everything or every opinion that is uttered on this show is exactly representative of how we feel. We just want to put out different perspectives. Today, talking with Tom, I'm going to be trying to take a broader regional perspective. What are the risks of it spreading to become a more serious regional conflict? And how do outside actors like the US and the UK or the United Nations play a constructive role to try to restore some kind of calm? So Tom, thank you very much for coming to join us today. When we worked together, 
I was the head of the section. You were a bright new young entrant in the Foreign Office. And it was obvious you were going to go on to be a stellar British diplomat. Well, sadly, my career came to an abrupt halt in 2019. Let's kick off just by talking about some of the human dimension to this issue. You were in Lebanon. I'm guessing you must have visited the refugee camps, the Palestinians who were still there so many years after the founding of Israel. Can you tell us some stories of who you met and your impressions? It's hard to believe, isn't it, that it was 26 years ago that we worked together. Well, I worked for you, let's be clear, in my very first job <laughs> in the Foreign Office. You know, I think most of the time I was drafting letters to members of the public. And when you think back to what I was drafting at the time, we were saying, we believe in a two-state solution. We just think this needs more energy, needs more commitment from the international community. And maybe if we implement those UN resolutions, and we would have known them off by heart, I mean, 242, 338, 475, that set the scaffolding for a peace process, all we need to do is work harder and we'll deliver that. All we need to do is just get behind the Americans. That was always the policy line, wasn't it? Not do anything independent. The next American administration will come along and they'll grip this. Don't worry. You know, our guys in Washington will just influence the next American administration and they'll come in and deliver a peace process. I suspect that our successors aren't writing those letters with as much hope optimism, conviction, as we were 26 years ago. You've brought back such a, an amazing memory. I mean, when you and I were working on this together, the two-state solution was very much alive. I went to Gaza for the moment when President Bill Clinton visited Gaza, and the whole streets of Gaza were bedecked with American flags, and he addressed the Palestinian National Congress and gave one of the most memorable speeches I've heard in my entire career, where he expressed empathy and understanding for the needs and concerns and hopes and dreams and fears of Palestinians, and yet helped them understand why Israel existed and why it was important to recognize them. And he persuaded the Palestinian National Council to remove language from their charter that called for Israel not to exist. And it was one of those extraordinary moments. I mean, wow, does that seem such a long time ago now? It really does. I mean, we that sense of hope at that moment. And of course, you know, remember that wider international context. We were coming through a period where we were starting to really understand this idea of responsibility to protect. I think we were very much in that chapter of the history book that probably started in 1989 and, and finished in 2016. You could call it the end of history. We thought the world was moving in our direction. Peace was possible. That we had the will and the leadership to just push through these obstacles. Our generation joining the Foreign Office really believed that. We had a sense that diplomacy was about positive change and that the momentum was with us. And I think what we've experienced since 2016 is that realization that history hasn't ended. Of course it hasn't ended. That 1989 was just one more date in the calendar. It didn't mark the beginning of the end of history. And that's been very hard, I think, for a lot of people of our generation of diplomats to really get our heads around because it's a sort of existential challenge. It's almost like we've lost our religion lost our grounding sense of progress towards liberal democracy. And now we're seeing it, of course, in this horrific breakdown of what we once called 
the Middle East peace process. I doubt that our successors are called, you know, the section head for the Middle East peace process and the deputy section head for the Middle East peace process anymore. If they are, I'm sad to say it's a cruel joke if they still have the title that we did. Tom, you're going to have to come back on this podcast many times because you've encapsulated precisely the rationale behind this podcast that actually what we hoped was a more positive trajectory for the world has become a far more worrying series of events. And we no longer seem to have the leaders in place who could help navigate this disordered world. But let's get back to this issue at hand of Israel and Palestine. So tell us about the Palestinian refugees in Lebanon. So they're, of course, a sizable part of the population and a key part of the population. And a massive part of Lebanon's last sort of 40, 50 years of history, since many of them were displaced into Lebanon by previous waves of conflict with Israel. And of course, the big dynamic when I was there, I was in Lebanon 2011 to 2015, was that the refugee population was then being swollen again by Syrian refugees to the point where one in three people in Lebanon was a refugee. You imagine that's sort of Nigel Farage's worst nightmare. Imagine what that would do to community society. And now the Palestinians were not really integrated in Lebanon. And so they didn't have the same political rights as the Lebanese. And there was always this concern about what might come out of the camps. And the camps were of course more impoverished than the rest of the country, much harder to get work permits much harder to build livelihoods and support their families. So it was pretty rough being a Palestinian in Lebanon. And I had quite a lot of interaction with them. So I would have gone to see them in Sabra and Shatila, where the terrible, terrible massacres took place in 1982, when Christian militias went in there and absolutely wiped out vast numbers of Palestinian refugees. That was incredibly moving to walk through those streets and see them unchanged, really, in... 30 years since that time. See that sense of a lack of hope, generation after generation. I think as well, I used to go out to universities where lots of Palestinians were studying and we'd set a a stopwatch. How long will it be in the Q&A before someone mentions the Sykes-Picot Agreement, the Balfour Agreement, these wounds of history that you and I know well from working in the region, but probably most school children, most adults in the UK don't know much about. You know, 100 years ago, when we were perceived as having sliced up the region in cynical ways, every school child in the Middle East can tell you about those. And by the way, that, you know, spoiler alert, it was normally the first question in every meeting with a group of Palestinian students or Lebanese students or Syrian students. This sense that I might jump into the meeting thinking, you know, I'm the new young ambassador, Great Britain, Global Britain, you know, soft power, the premiership, Adele, David Beckham. And they were thinking about Sykes-Picot and Balfour and the historic wounds that we'd left in the region. And I think that's important to remember. Then I think the other thing I'd say about the Palestinians was that every year on November the 11th, I would do three remembrance services, north, south and and central Lebanon, to remember those who, the British troops who died there, but also the, the other troops who fought alongside us in the Second World War. And most of them were Palestinians. And so at those events, there were great gatherings of the Palestinian community as well. Often those graveyards are in the middle of Palestinian areas. These old guys who had fought with us, fought for us in the Second World War, would come up to me. Those are always very moving events anyway. But they would come staggering up towards the end of their lives to me and show me the keys, the keys to their houses. Because, of course, at the end of that conflict, after 1945, they went back to their homes 
And three years later, we're driven out. And they left thinking they'd be back the following week. They took the keys with them. And they would sit around me and show me the keys to their houses and say, do you think our sons, our grandsons, our grandchildren will ever take these keys home and reopen those houses? And what do you say as a British ambassador in that situation? There's nothing you can say. You're reminding me of a very similar story when I went to stay with a friend whose family lived in a refugee camp in Gaza. This was before Israel had blocked movement between Gaza and Israel proper. And so one day he and his friends put me in their car and we drove into the south of Israel, unfortunately, probably where some of the horrible massacres took place by Hamas three weeks ago. We drove around a village, which was the village that their grandparents had fled from in 1948 when Israel was established and this thing that the Palestinians called the Nakba. And I remember it very well because we drove through this village and the people in the truck with me, these Gazans, were actually able to point to me and say, that was my grandmother's house and that is where my father was born. And I started getting very, very upset because it was just awful. And so this Palestinian friend of mine, to try and lighten the mood, he pointed to a donkey and he said, and that was my grandmother's donkey, <laughs> to try and sort of lighten the mood. And then they started joking, and that was my toy car. But yeah, this is very alive. I mean, this is all such a close, small geographical space, right? And, you know, 100 years ago, my predecessors in, in Lebanon would have traveled between Aleppo, Damascus, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Beirut. They wouldn't have thought twice about making those journeys across these borders, which we now know are war zones, UN troops, big wired fences, and so on. I completely agree about being moved in those moments because all of us who accept Israel's right to exist should also acknowledge that there were people there. And that one of the things that makes me angry in some of the discourse is when people say that this was somehow empty land. After 1948, Israel made the desert bloom when there was nothing there before. That's very hard to hear when you meet people who can point at their houses. So let's come on to some of the political and strategic aspects of this, and in particular, what we think are the risks of this spreading and developing into a serious regional conflagration. We've already seen it have an effect in many places around the world in the form of mass protests for the Palestinians or calling for a ceasefire. We've seen the horrific images of a baying mob trying to hunt down Jews that came off a plane from Tel Aviv that landed in Dagestan. In those protests, we've seen people calling for jihad or uttering very loaded for Israeli slogans such as from the river to the sea. We've seen people taking down pictures of some of the hostages or defacing them. But on the other hand, we've also seen settler attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank. We've seen rockets being fired into Israel from Lebanon and even the Houthis in Yemen trying to fire rockets. And in an absolutely hideous example of a hate crime, we saw a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy murdered by his family's own landlord in America. So this is already inflaming tensions around the world. But so far, thankfully, it hasn't developed into a full-blown regional conflict. What do you think is holding back players like Hezbollah from going 
into full-out attack mode. I mean, you were ambassador in Lebanon, you know them. Do you think that the American strategy of positioning battleships in the region has helped and some of their messaging? I mean, the message from President Biden saying, don't. What is helping contain it so far? I certainly think the two US carrier groups are a massive and effective deterrent. The biggest deterrent really for Hezbollah is that, and maybe for Iran, is that they don't judge at the moment that it is in their interests for it to escalate. And I think the exchanges that you're seeing across the Israel-Lebanon border are so far within that sort of containable box. Israel and Hezbollah know each other very well, and they have well-worn processes for dealing with the rockets that come in either direction and for dealing with these moments of tension and retaliation. So far, what we've seen, I think, is within that. I think it is containable. But of course, there are a lot of rockets pointed in both directions, and the situation is on a complete knife edge. And so the potential for miscalculation is immense. You've also got to remember that Hezbollah are a political actor like anyone else. So the pressure on them from the street will grow as more and more of this footage of these horrors on the ground in Gaza hit their television sets day in, day out, they will have to tread a very fine line between being very vocal and critical of what's going on, but resisting the pressure for them to actually enter the fray. So I think there's always a risk of escalation. I think wise friends of Israel will be saying, don't do what Iran wants you to do and escalate across that border. And I know that certainly... My friends in Lebanon from all communities will be desperately hoping that there's not an escalation across that border because Lebanon has been through such horrors in recent years. State failure, the port explosion, economic collapse. They remember 2006, the last time that Israel smashed up South Lebanon. And they know the deep, deep damage another conflict would do to them. Is the decision in Hezbollah's hands or are they subservient and responsive to Iran? Where would the decision-making lie? I can understand well why the wider population in Lebanon, this is the last thing they need to have a wider conflagration. But where does the decision really lie? So that's such an important question. As you can imagine, in four years in Lebanon, I must have sent many, many telegrams back to London, to our bosses, trying to answer exactly that question. I remember sending one which was titled, No BB, Hezbollah does not run Lebanon. Because Netanyahu was out there saying, unfairly, that Hezbollah controlled Lebanon. Hezbollah are a powerful actor in Lebanon, but they're not the only powerful actor in Lebanon. And there are checks and balances on their, on their manoeuvre. But to your question, on the big strategic questions, including, do we set off another round of conflict? Do we escalate this across the border? Hezbollah would follow instruction from Iran. Now, they might argue about that. Think of it a little bit like America and Britain. If America said, right, post 9-11, you're coming with us into Iraq, Britain might argue about exactly how we do it and where we do it, the manner in which we do it, but basically was pretty certain to tag along. In this case, it would be firmer than that. If Iran gave that instruction, it'd be very difficult for Hezbollah to say no, but they'd have some margin of manoeuvre around how it happened, the scale. Up to that point where it's a full-on stop-go decision, Hezbollah do have quite a lot of leverage in that negotiation, back and forth. And 
whether pushing for escalation or against it. My view, based on conversations, lots of conversations in the region in the last two or three weeks, is that within Hezbollah, they don't want to do that at the moment. That they are saying to those in Iran that they're encouraging it, that no, this isn't in our interests. Let us stay here with the deterrent force that we have. And hopefully that will mean that Israel doesn't escalate in the West Bank and Gaza. We're going to take a short break now, but when we come back, we're going to explore a little bit more what the calculations are of regional players like Iran, and then look at what role international actors like the US and the UK can play in this conflict, and whether they're getting their interventions right as well. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So let's go back to regional actors. From Iran's point of view, is this playing out more or less as they might have hoped or can exploit? Sort of Israel now coming under huge international criticism for inverted commas, overreacting though given the atrocities they experienced, it's an emotive word to accuse them of overreacting, whether it's the right approach or the wise approach. But, you know, there's been a lot of speculation that this is all sort of part of a trap that draws Israel into a quagmire, makes them the bad guys. Then America is defending and protecting Israel. So they then become isolated, as we've seen at the UN. How will Iran be seeing this? Is this sort of playing out quite nicely? I think the Iranian regime itself will be quietly satisfied with how things are going. I think that they would have been surprised by the scale of the Hamas attacks. We were rightly outraged in the West and stood alongside Israel at that moment because we were also horrified. I think Iran will be very happy with the increasing damage to Israel's reputation in the world and especially to America's reputation in the world. 
And then remember, I think the big prize in all of this for Iran is that they've set back the process of normalization between the Gulf states and Israel by, at the very best, months and maybe decades. I think that Western leaders who are, who are able to speak quietly, confidentially as friends to Israel should be saying, don't forget that that is the real prize here, that normalization with the Arab world. And don't overreact to such an extent that you make that impossible. Listen to the messages from the Arab governments now. They're condemning Hamas. They're basically saying, we will work with you to deal with this threat, but not at the cost of thousands, tens of thousands of innocent Palestinian lives. And Iran will be hoping every day that goes by, every bit of footage that goes around the region of, of the, the horrific situation on the ground in Gaza, that normalization is buried in the rubble of Gaza. Yes. So to pick up your point, Tom, about the messaging and what the UK and the US should be saying to Israel, it's kind of telling them, don't lose sight of the long game here. Don't play into the hands of malign actors like Iran and don't lose sight of the prospects for Israeli Arab rapprochement. There's also the issue of humanitarian access. Should Israel be blocking this humanitarian access? What strategic aim is it hoping to achieve by cutting off food, fuel and water? So Israel should absolutely not be blocking the humanitarian access. And I think that Western leaders should have been much less equivocal from the very beginning on that point. I think I think we got it wrong, to be honest, um, with the early messaging out of number 10 and actually out of other political leaders around this point. The danger of saying we back you no matter what is what do you do two weeks, three weeks later when no matter what turns out to be what we've seen. The danger of suggesting that there is one humanitarian law for one country and a different humanitarian law for the rest is then you get into this back and forth over, so what are they allowed to do then? Are they allowed to cut off food? Well, no, they're not. Are they allowed to cut off water, electricity? No, they're not. I mean, there's, there's no need to equivocate on that. And you can do that as a wise friend of Israel. And I think we're in a phase of the conflict now where the number one message has to be that the overwhelming imperative is to prevent further loss of civilian life. Get the hostages out. I would be saying, if I was writing the line still in number 10, as friends of, of Israel and the Palestinians, we want all violence against civilians to stop. Now, unequivocal. We back international law, including release of hostages, full humanitarian access, civilian protection. And then we back Israelis and Palestinians to live in security, justice, opportunity in lands of their own. And that means stopping the air bombardments. It means, I believe, stopping the ground invasion. It means stopping anything that isn't directed very specifically at getting the hostages out and hunting down those directly responsible for the Hamas attacks. I think this wave of wider retribution, establishing deterrence, mowing the lawn in this way, is actually counterproductive. It's not in the interests of peace, of the two-state solution. I worry about the damage it will do to that normalization process for Israel and the region. So I think we should be saying, yeah, we feel your pain, we've got your back, but don't make this mistake. Don't add fuel to the fire. In the most recent UN resolution on this issue was at the General Assembly calling for a ceasefire. The US voted against it, the UK abstained, France voted in favour, 
and various other EU members were splintered across those lines as well, just exposing one of the other, I think, challenges here, which is any prospect of the UN playing a constructive role. Because certainly from where I sit, I see countries like Russia very deliberately proposing poison pill language in resolutions that are designed to sow chaos between the US and Europeans. Why was that resolution on calling for a ceasefire something that the British and the Americans felt they couldn't support? And is there any role the UN can play here other than the humanitarian one? Well, it's interesting when you think about trying not to do what your opponent wants you to do, and we talked about in the context of Israel and, and Iran, at the UN, we have ended up doing exactly what Russia enjoys us doing, which is being divided in this way. And so no one would have taken much pleasure from the way that that shook down in New York. It's also, let's be clear, it's not a great look for a serious country like the UK to end up having to abstain on something. Now, there were good reasons why they did, but they would have much preferred, I'm sure, to have found language that allowed them to support a resolution. What was the problem with the resolution from the UK and the US point of view? So the UK, and to a greater extent the US, although this will change at some point, as it has done with previous conflicts between Israel and its neighbours, is arguing that Israel needs more time to establish deterrence, to deal with the longer-term threat of Hamas, and that to call for a complete ceasefire will effectively disarm Israel but not disarm Hamas. Hamas will continue their violence, but Israel will be forced to stop theirs. So that's the argument against it. I think the moment has come already for us to be pushing much, much harder for a pause, a cessation of hostilities, whatever you want to call it. But for that moment where Israel stops that bombardment and lets us get serious amounts of aid into those Palestinians who need it, I think that moment has come and that Britain should be on that side of the argument. So I'm actually, I'd say, closer to the French position than the UK position right now, which is a funny thing for a British diplomat to have to admit to. Well, um, thank you for that clarity. I mean, my understanding was is that the language in the resolution that did eventually get passed, I think, was calling for a humanitarian truce, which is a very gentle breathing space but that it didn't mention the Hamas attacks. So that was a definitely problematic absence there for the US and the UK. So yes, we need to get to a breathing space. We need to try and draw back from the brink. We do need to think about the day after. And I want to quote Dennis Ross, who was the chief US negotiator at the time when you and I were working on the Middle East peace process. And he was quoted recently saying, as heartbreaking as the situation is now, eventually there does have to be a day after. So let's just spend the last little bit of this episode talking about how do we get to that day after? Is there any prospect of a two-state solution being resurrected or is that now completely dead? Is it dead or is it the only way out? Now, you wrote a really well-crafted and interesting article in the FT recently talking about three particular strands, security, justice and opportunity. Can you talk us through what you meant by those three elements and what you think we need to be doing to get there? 
You asked why it's so difficult for the United Nations to act. And obviously, the Security Council has been paralyzed. I mean, worse than actually, it's been vandalized by Putin. And it was orphaned by Donald Trump, which makes it very difficult to build that trust you need in these situations. And that's going to make the next phase much, much harder. It will mean that there's a greater role for players in the region, Turkey, Qatar, UAE, Saudi, Egypt, Jordan, than I th- even more than there would have been with previous conflicts of this kind. Look, ultimately, there are three ways to settle this when you have two peoples sharing the same land. The first one is that you leave it to, to God and both sides feel that God has promised them that land and maybe they can wait and, and God will decide at some point. I wouldn't wait. Second option is to fight it out. And what will happen then is that the stronger side will win, which in this case is Israel, but that the weaker side militarily will make sure that they can't enjoy that victory. They'll make it very, very hard for them to ever feel safe in that space. And the third way to do that is to have a process that establishes a compromise, ultimately where you share the land, where you establish either two states or a single state solution that allows you to coexist within that one state with equal rights. Now, all of that is really hard. I'm not pretending that that third option is easy, but who would argue that the other two options are better? And I think it's failed because that peace process hasn't been in the interest of powerful players in the region, the Iranian regime, the Israeli hard right, Hamas itself. It's failed because America hasn't been able to bring enough pressure on the Israeli side to get them to the table, to get Netanyahu to a deal in particular. And it's failed because of that weakness of the Palestinian moderate leadership, because of the weakness of the UN, the weakness of Europe, the weakness of Israeli moderates. And so we've ended up with this cycle of violence, terror, retribution, which is why I argued that we should get back to these ideas, security, justice, opportunity. What would we say to Israelis and Palestinians that meant they could either have equal rights to security, justice, and opportunity? And I think reframing it in that way makes it easier to to get out of this corner that we found ourselves in. Now, one of the issues that I've been kicking around in my head is do these recent events further empower the extremists on both sides or do they end up discrediting them? And I certainly hope it's the latter. We may be at the current phase where people are rallying behind the most extreme points, but at some stage... I hope the extremists on both sides get discredited because you say there is no solution of fighting it out or leaving it to God. How do we find these partners for peace and how do we empower them? What is our leverage on the Palestinians who've been so badly served by their leaders? And what is our leverage on Israel to find and empower that peace camp that does exist there? So our leverage is limited. There is a problem on both sides of that table. The current Israeli cabinet is full of people who who won't be partners for peace. Clearly Hamas are not an option at the peace table. And we have to find a way to renew and refresh Palestinian leadership. If I could take, and it seems crass and glib, to try to search for any positives in this current situation. But if I could take one glimmer It is that the world now remembers why this matters, why diplomacy is so important. We've neglected that diplomacy for years now. The notes that you and I were writing in 1997 probably hadn't changed much over the succeeding 26 years. And 
maybe now leaders in the West will return to the Middle East with more of a sense of, of why it matters and will work harder to build up that next generation of leaderships. And look, ultimately, we know from previous conflicts where we've had to find ways to heal these wounds of history, to reach back and, and deal with these ancestral raw divisions. Think of Northern Ireland or, or South Africa, think of Rwanda now and so many others, people who drive it and the people who decide that they will make peace despite the politicians, despite the leadership that they have. And, you know, I was doing this event for the Hay Festival with this extraordinary Palestinian doctor called Isaldin Abu Leish. His three daughters had been killed in an Israeli airstrike in a previous attack on uh, on Gaza. And it's unthinkable. I don't think any of us can possibly imagine how you come back from a moment like that. And he was telling me the story and it was very emotional. And, you know, I'm normally a person in conversation who's looking for the positives and I just couldn't find any. I was sat there despairing. And it was actually Isildine who reached out and, and gripped my arm and, and consoled me and said, ultimately, the greatest courage is to forgive and we have to forgive. And that's what my daughters would ask me to do. And that's what, however hard it is, I wake up each morning trying to do. If you remember that there are people like that on the other side of the table, you see it in the case of some of the parents now of the Israeli hostages in Gaza, people who can still see the humanity in the people across the fence. As long as there are people like that, then we can retain some hope. Tom, thank you so much for ending this episode on that immensely moving note. There is humanity on both sides. We need to recognize the humanity of both sides. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. And I would love to have you back. Thank you so much, Tom. It's tough talking about these issues. And I know that a lot of people are finding this subject so, so difficult. And I can understand that. It's raw and emotional and it drives us to despair. But I hope we can still find some elements of hope in there. Thank you so much for listening today. As our guest Tom today mentioned, and as Jason and I discussed in our previous episode on the Israel-Gaza conflict, peace is hard and sometimes it requires a leap of faith and the willingness to talk to your worst enemies. So next week, what better guest could we have than Jonathan Powell to talk about the lessons he learned talking to IRA and Sinn Féin leaders and negotiating the Good Friday peace agreement. If you like this show, please follow us at Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on social media at Disorder Show and read more about these issues in our show notes. That's all for today. Thank you to George McDonough, our producer, and our executive producer, Neil Fern. I hope you have an orderly week. Music